Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the stresses and strains on our healthcare system, especially in crowded hospitals. Got Dr. Kevin McLeod standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen here to Dr. Randeep Gill, the pressure at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Have a listen. We've outgrown our emergency department. We don't have the inpatient capacity to take care of our patients, and we're bursting at the seams. There's a severe uh, concern that we're not getting the, uh, the, the the advanced care services at Surrey, so everybody has to be transferred out of Surrey to go to different hospitals. All right, let's talk about the stresses and strains on the system now. Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital, very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for being here. Although listening to your newscast, I, I think you should have Taylor Swift on as a guest and not me. You, you'd get much, much more of a draw. <laughs> you, th- you think so? I think she'd be more popular than you. Come on now. <laughs> oh, a gazillion uh, uh, times more. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Imagine the money that is rolling in there. Holy smokes. Oh, it's crazy. The it's jackpot. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about the, the the healthcare system right now. And I love speaking to you about this because we get the front-line view of, of what is happening. And, you know, we've seen the, we've heard about the hallway medicine, like patients on stretchers waiting to be admitted to hospital. And that's been around for a long time. But is it getting worse? Like, what is the latest here? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely getting busier. It seems month over month it gets busier. It, typically in the past, we, we would have quieter summers, right? It, it, mm. it wasn't as overloaded. So when you hear about hallway medicine in the summer, um, that's very concerning because volumes tend to go up in the fall and winter as, as people get more respiratory tract infections and, and other things. So I think we're heading into a, a bit of a difficult time. The, the other thing, you know, I always like to use the analogy of the Lionsgate Bridge. You, you could keep putting more and more cars on the bridge and you know, traffic flows, but eventually you get that one extra car and the whole thing stops. And it, it's a bit like that in healthcare. Like you, you can keep piling more and more onto the people working in the system, but Eventually, you, you know, you, you sort of just come to a grinding halt and, and efficiency goes right down. So, you know, one of the reasons people are in hallways is that we can't get people out of the hospital. Well, if everybody is so busy looking after the acute person in emergency, you know, that person who's very stable but just needs some stuff done to get them out of the hospital, um, that gets delayed. You can't be in two or three or eight places at the same time. And it's one of the reasons I've pushed for a long time saying we need teams like we need helpers we need to to work in a more collaborative way and and there's so many ways we could do that it would ultimately save you money yeah let's talk a little bit about the situation that you're seeing there like you know i'm checking out your twitter right now i encourage people to give you a follow on, on social media and you write my colleagues are working flat out with an intensity that just isn't sustainable where are these complex patients supposed to go instead what are you seeing here like are you seeing are you seeing some patients that are in in hospital beds where they really they should really be somewhere else and getting a different type of treatment or what's happening well like there's two things with that so what prompted that tweet is more more the community setting or or my office setting there's you know there's so many patients who do not have access to a, a family physician 
Um, and, and that becomes very, very problematic because there's not somebody coordinating that complex care. That patient really doesn't have anywhere else to go. And I had two separate people in, in my office in the, the past week that were absolutely in tears because they have nowhere to go to get meds and other things. And, and um, you know, so there's, there's a huge lack of ability to access a system for some patients. Um, certainly in the hospitals, we, we have tons of patients who are in a hospital setting that do not need to be in that hospital setting. They're waiting for long-term care, yeah. yet we have empty long-term care beds because we can't staff them. So the physical brick and mortar is there, but we can't staff that bed. You know, and, and, and little things like that, like, you know, to get long-term care aids, and I probably have the numbers wrong, um, I don't know them off the top of my head, but, you know, they're paid $22, $23 an hour. It's a really hard job for that. You know, we need to look at those things because maybe we think we're saving a little bit on the back end on, on you know, making a job like a long-term care aid look more attractive, but then we're spending way more money on the front end because we can't empty our emergency departments because there's all these people in the hospital who need to get the long-term care. So there, it just seems like there's this lack of kind of vision coordination understanding that there's all these different moving parts um yeah you know and it, it, how, it's how so much, hard in a giant system to get everything to work together yeah how much of this do you think is aggravated by the shortage of family doctors i know so many people that don't have a family doctor our family does not have one we used to and then he moved away and we haven't had one since so and a lot of people are in that same situation like if some people don't have access to a family doctor, maybe even have some trouble accessing a, a walk-in clinic. Do they and do they show up at the hospital as kind of a last resort? You know, you got nowhere else to go except the ER? Well, I think there's a few things with that, yes. So people do land in the emergency department because they don't have some other way they can access the system. Um, for sure, the, the bigger concern, though, is that they land in the emergency department because a more straightforward problem didn't get dealt with in a timely way and now it's a really big problem right you know the, the person who i don't feel right something's off i don't really have a way to get labs and you know they're an undiagnosed diabetic as an example you know well that can drag on for months or years and then they land in the emergency department when things are really bad and there's a bunch of damage to their body and other things and 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 that's not an infrequent occurrence right that the person who feels a little bit off where if we pick something up earlier, we would have cut that tumor out, but hey, they couldn't access the system. So now that tumor is everywhere and the outcome is going to be worse and the cost to treat that is much higher. So, so not having access to a, a family doctor is a, is a really big deal. And it, it's becoming a, a much bigger challenge in my practice because, you know, I'm taking on more and more of that family doctor primary care medicine because those patients mm. don't have somewhere else to go. But you know, it's simple math. You only have so many hours in a day. So if there's more and more patients coming through the door, you, you choose. Well, I either make patients wait longer and, you know, that becomes very dangerous for patients or I rush patients more quickly and I spend less minutes with each patient. And, and that also is problematic because, you, you know, you tend to miss things or the quality of the care can't be as good as it should be because you, you have to push people through, not because you want to, but, you know, if I've got a waiting room full of 15 people, I, I can't spend an hour with each person, right? 
Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting insight. And when you think about people who show up in that emergency room with, with those type of undiagnosed problems and then they get worse later, like, and you touched on this briefly, if we sort of bottom line it here on, on kind of a dollars and cents basis, it ends up being more expensive in the long run, right? Because it wasn't caught early. Well, it's absolutely more expensive and, yeah. and, and worse outcomes for the patient um, and just us as a society in general. Um, but, but then, you know, if you've got doctors like in my field, internal medicine, that, that see these complex patients, well, then you, you somehow have to. And I'm not asking for a penny of money. Right? You guys overpay me, if anything. But, you know, I need helpers. Like, I need physician assistants. I need, yeah. you know, I need other helpers because it's, it's unreasonable to be trying to see 60-plus people a day when really it should be 20 to 25, but I'm not going to turn those other people away. And, and I've seen it over and over and it's, it's hard to say, and people don't like hearing this, but you know, some people that cannot access care have a really bad outcome. You know, somebody can't access care and get their blood thinners and then they stroke. That's not, you know, the one in a million, those things are happening more than I think the public understands. Um, you know, and, and, and that has a huge impact on our society, not just a cost, but like to that person's family, to that individual. Um, you know, so th- there are bad outcomes happening because we don't have the capacity in the system. All right, we continue to my discussion now, Dr. Kevin McLeod, as we uh, discuss the stresses and strains on our healthcare system. What are you, Kevin, what are you hearing from your colleagues on the front lines here, like other doctors, nurses, or are people feeling the this, this strain? Are people burning out? Yeah, I mean, I think people are, they're tired. Um, I think there's a, a level of, you know, it's just like a disappointment or frustration when when you can't provide, you know, the best quality of care you want to provide. Like you're, you're constantly kind of working against pressures, like, well, there's not enough space, can't get this in. You know, I, I feel just, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just this weird feeling when, you know, you, you know you need to get this thing done for a patient, but there's an eight-month wait to make it happen. Um, you know, just it feels feel like you're not able to, or you take on some of that, like, responsibility for the, the lack of access to a system. And, and there's just, there's a lot of sad stories, right, where, where people can't access things. And I, I think most of us are, are pretty healthy. We don't have to access the system. You know, maybe we do when we hurt our wrist or knee or something like that. But... But if, if you have a chronic condition and you've got to be accessing the system right now, it's really challenging for patients. Do you think that there is there too many resources put into management, bureaucracy? Like I spoke to Kevin Falcon on the show yesterday, leader of the BC United Party's leader of the opposition at the legislature, and his complaint was, well, they're hiring too many managers. There's too many vice presidents in the in the health authorities, there's too many managers and bureaucrats being hired instead of frontline healthcare workers. Is that is that true? I mean, what what do you I see? It's part of it, it's part of it. I mean, there's you know, it's a complex system to manage, and yeah. and um, but but it's part of it. I mean, we do we are spending more and more on administration. Had a, a lovely patient who's who's First Nations, and and um, he was stuck in a hallway bed. He won't mind me saying this, but he was stuck in a hallway bed for for days. And, you know, when I was talking to him, he said, it's really funny. Like I've had all sorts of different admin people come and talk to me. I had a first nations navigator come and talk to me. And he, he said, I'm first nations. I don't want 
a First Nations navigator coming and talking to me. I just want a damn bed like everybody else. (laughs) So, and it, it sort of really stuck with me because, you know, here we've created all this complexity and we're, we're kind of missing the, the basics, right? Like we, we need nurses and physios and occupational therapists and some physician assistants and beds. You know, we don't have to make it as complicated um, as I think sometimes we do. You know, you look at urgent care centers, we've, we've created this incredibly complex structure and then we can't staff it. Yeah. So we, we just, we got to make things way more simple. Um, let, let me ask you about the physician assistance issue. You touched on this a couple of times where it wouldn't, you need help. You, it would be nice to have some assistance to help you with the, with the workload. And I've talked to plenty of other doctors who've said the same thing. And we talked about this idea of introduce physician assistance in, into British Columbia. Why, why is that not happening in BC? Like, what's, what's happening there? Um, I'll be quite honest. I don't know, because every other province has physician assistants. They're utilized extensively in the United States. So a physician assistant is somebody who's working directly with that physician to offload, you know, appropriate parts of the care, right? Like, you know, if somebody, if I send them for some fancy heart tests and those tests look normal, you know, I don't need to necessarily be the one to say, hey, it did show this. Like, you know, I can have somebody else help with that. And, and um you know, they, they, they make a lot of sense. Like, good example, operating rooms, right? Like, often we have family doctors in operating rooms working with, say, the orthopedic surgeon to do the assist for the OR. Physician assistants do that. They're trained to do that. Well, then you're not pulling a family doctor out of the community. You use that physician assistant to, to do that role. Um, so there's there's lots of things they could do. I'm not sure why the, the holdup. I can't just go hire a physician assistant um, even though I have my own office, because they don't have a college set up here to license them. You know, so there's all this bureaucracy that just needs to get fixed. Every other province seems to have figured it out. Um, I don't know why the delay here. Um, you know, if, if there was some real reason why not to have them, we'll speak up. Like, government should say, no, we don't want to do it for these reasons. Like, let's have the debate. But, yeah. but, um, but speak up. Don't just put your head in the sand. It does seem like a bit of a no-brainer to me, for sure, and we continue to follow that one going forward. Kevin, I'm always grateful to you for your time and your insight on the healthcare system. Thanks for coming on today. Mike, anytime. All right, let's talk about co-ownership of real estate now. Now, everybody knows the dream of buying a house or a townhome. That has just dried up and gone away for so many people. So how about you do a team-up with uh, another family, perhaps? Buy the place together, split the mortgage, share the house for two families. You got one upstairs, one downstairs. That is one model of co-ownership of property. There's lots of ways to do this. Got some great guests on this. Got Noam Dolgun standing by, founder of the Collaborative Home Ownership website. Hey, Noam. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Also, Jody Eaton on the line. Jody is a co-home owner. Hi, Jody. Hello. All right. Th- thanks, guys, to both of you for doing this. Jody, let me go to you first. So t- tell me about your co-home ownership here. How's that working out for you? Well, it's great so far. We ended up closing on a property in May. And um, so far, we have been really enjoying the fact that we have we moved from a small condo, and now we have access to the whole yard of a house. We um, 
have went from two bedrooms to three and we've really just been able to um you know building and then some of the tasks actually have been really it's been really nice to have another couple adults my husband and i have young kids and being able to you know have some help with getting the garden sorted doing things like sanding the deck and stuff like that it's actually really nice having some support with that oh wow okay what part of town were you able to buy a place um grandview woodland pretty close to trout lake Okay, very nice. Now, how did this work out? So you've got like, so you've, you're sharing the place with another family. You bought, you bought together. Is that right? Yep. And so we have, we, we've got about half the house and they've got about half the house. We've got the downstairs and half the uh, main floor and they've got the other half the main floor and the top. Wow. That's amazing. And do you like share the yard? Yep, yard is front and backyard is shared as opposed to like a duplex situation where you sort of have one one family has their yard and the other family has their yard. Wow, okay. And and the other family you purchased with, were they friends of yours or how did that all work out? Nope. We actually met them through the process through Noam. So Noam runs wow. these um Yeah. Oh that's um, that's amazing. Sort of so meet and greets and stuff. So we met them there. Right. So when you did the, the first meet and greet I mean that's got to be crucial, right? First impressions mm-hmm. or everything. Like, did did how did and did it go well? Do you think like okay, I think we can do this with this people? Do you guys hit it off right away? Yeah, absolutely. And we were looking at houses. We had sort of the same idea for what we were looking for in terms of you know yard with lots of sun, something where we'd each have a reasonable amount of space. And we luckily were able to find that. Wow, that's amazing. I was speaking to Jody Eaton. Uh, she's a co homeowner. How she pitched in with another family here to to buy a place. So well, that's really amazing, and and I'm gl- super glad that it worked out for you. Um, did you have any worries or concerns about it going in? Like, you know, it, it just seems to me I'm thinking. Let's say you let's say you decide to do this with another family, and then all of a sudden there's a dispute or there's disagreements or people are not getting along. Did that ever enter your mind? Is it possible downside? Well, I mean, we were living in a condo before, and the same thing would happen if you're buying a condo with a strata. Like, that kind of stuff happens all yeah. the time. You're, the reality is, in Vancouver nowadays, you're living with and very close to people, whether you like it or not. At least yeah. in this situation, you, you have some degree of agency about who you're going to be living with and sharing space and making collective decisions with. Right. Um, so I, I don't I don't think that it was um, and it, there's always a bit of fear, but I think that the way we kind of have gone at it is that you know it's about fifty percent legal agreements and making sure that we have good exit strategies and we've worked with a lawyer to create a legal co ownership agreement and it's about fifty percent kumbaya like you know let's try to <laughs> make things work and know we're all going into it to try to make you know make a happy home and that nobody's trying to you know in any way rip the other person off it's it's just that we we, you know, we're all advocating for our interests and we have to come to mutual agreements. And yeah. I mean, I, I think the issue is that if you're in a strata, then strata will just step in and make the decision for you as opposed to letting you come to it on your own. But, you know, we all have to get along with people in our lives. And I think, you know, doing it in your home is no different. Yeah, for sure. How many kids do you have? I have two. And, and are there kids in the other family? No, none yet. They're okay. planning maybe at some point to have kids. They're planning, okay. They're well, this be yeah. This is going to be one big happy house here, uh, it sounds like. <laughs> we hope so. Uh, yeah, and uh, now speaking of that uh, that exit strategy you were talking about, like obviously you got to have some legal agreements in place here. Like, What happens if, if, if your family or the other family you're, you're sharing there with, what if they decide, you know what, we're moving out, we'd like to share our part. How does that work? 
So essentially, um, there's a time frame. And so we're at about nine months now. So the, the, the uh, party that wants to leave has to notify the other party in writing that they would like to leave or sell their share. Um, So then the then the other party has first, you know, kind of first dibs on buying them out if they want to or are able to. Um, then they have a chance to sort of propose a a party, um, a new party to come in. And the price is set at sort of what the half of what the assessed were 50 percent ownership. So half of what the assessed value of the house would be. So we would get the house assessed and the property and then the price would be set there so you lose a little bit of the ability to just play the market and see how high of a price you can get but you are reasonably assured of getting your value out um and then after that um we would have a um the, the house would be put the share of the house would be put on the market and then um the price would be kind of fixed and then we would have a chance like if we were remaining we would have a chance to sort of see who the people were coming in and who we would like to you know ask to make an offer on the place right so, right and you can i think noam actually recently sold a house sold has been selling shares of property so he probably has more information about how that goes down in <laughs> in the in the sale process Jody, I'm really glad it's working out for you and your family, and I hope it continues to be a happy experience for you. Thanks for sharing the story today. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you bet. That's Jody Eaton there, and she's a happy co-homeowner, as you heard her describe. Let's discuss with Noam Dolgan now, collaborative home ownership, and Noam helped Jody out for the, with this deal. Okay, Noam, that, that's a very interesting story we just heard from Jody there. Uh, do most of the deals you work here on with co-home ownership, do they all work out as happily as that one? Well, the beauty of, of what we do here with Coho is we set you up for success by having the right legal agreement, the right conversations, uh, you know, the right dating process before you go into it. You do hear about the you know, 0.1% of co-ownership deals that turn sour, but those are almost always when there is no legal agreement between them, when people just mm. spontaneously bought a property, and then 10 years down the road, their relationship has soured, one wants to leave, the other one doesn't, and they have no mechanism for, for, pass, for passing along. So that's where really this, this legal process, this, um, these advanced conversations when you're on really good terms and you're really idealistic and optimistic, allows you to, to have the plan for if and when something changes. Okay, is this becoming more popular, especially with home prices the way they are right now? Everybody feeling the stress and strain. They want to get into a home. They can't afford it. Like, are you noticing that there's more traffic on your website? Is your phone ringing more often? Absolutely. I mean, this is not uh. a new concept. People have been co-owning since the 70s and, and before because there's always people who can't afford or who want to build community in their housing better. But there's no question that with the escalation in prices and with the, the, the COVID response, people are seeing the importance of building more community into their housing. And so we've had a huge uptake recently. And the surveys are, are, are showing that. Uh, a recent Royal LePage survey showed 76% of people of non-owners look at co-ownership as one of their only pathways to home ownership. And that number is up for about 15 to 20% just three to five years ago. It has really grown in people's consciousness. Yeah, right. And, and when people are, so when people are listening to this and they're thinking like, hmm, you know, maybe this, maybe this is an option for me. Like, how would, how does the mortgage work? Like when you've got two, two different owners, two different families, 
who signs the mortgage? Like, is everyone is everyone got to be in on the mortgage, or how do you split it? How does that work? Yes. So under Canadian law, all owners on a property need to be jointly liable for a mortgage. So mm. everyone would be on a mortgage together, which again is why the co-ownership agreement, the legal agreement, is key because one of the parts there is delinquency. What happens if somebody stops to pay? How do you protect yourself from you know from them? I won't go into the details there, but there's lots of processes there to protect yourself. But there are some really interesting products that uh, the credit unions like Van City have created to allow you to segment those mortgages. So even though you're all on the mortgage together, you each have your own portion. One of you can have a small mortgage, one of you a large mortgage, one of you fixed, one of you variable. Um, so it mm. really allows for easier accounting and easier responsibility for each of your sections. What kind of properties would you say are most suitable to an arrangement like this? Are we talking typically like a detached home or a townhouse? Like, you know, could you do this with a, could you do it with a strata property or a condo? Uh, yeah, so there's two different forms of co-ownership. The more common form that, that Jody and her family are in are where you're in a home with multiple suites. So yeah. you're getting what's effectively like a, duplex or a condo suite uh, in a shared property. But we also have people who want to live collectively for even more affordability, even more community. So if you're looking to have separate suites, there are a lot of houses in, in the Metro Vancouver area that are designed for that. Vancouver specials, houses with laneway homes, uh, multi-suite conversions. A lot of our properties have been set up of multiple suites historically for rentals or for intergenerational families. Uh, and now we're looking at other uses for those same properties. But certainly we see a lot of first-time home buyers who can't necessarily get into the market but are at a stage where they'd be living with roommates anyway, saying, well, let's, I can't afford a one-bedroom condo, but let three of us come together and buy a townhouse. Uh, and we're also seeing that interest in the boomer generation, you know, mm. looking for a little more support and community as they age in place. So really any property can be co-owned. It doesn't matter if it's strata or if it's freehold. It's really about finding the housing type in your area that meets your needs and meets your price point, and then finding the right partner to match that. I'm hearing from British Columbians every day that are being crushed by the costs of daily life. And uh, one of those big impacts that they're seeing is ever-escalating interest rates. Okay, as Premier David Eby speaking yesterday, and yeah, he says he's hearing a lot from people who are feeling crushed by the cost of living, uh, pleading against another interest rate hike next week. Well, we'll see what happens next week, but for sure, people are feeling the stresses and the strains, and I'm not surprised that more people are taking a look at a co-home ownership option here if they want to get into uh, home ownership. My guest is Noam Dolgan, Collaborative Home Ownership. And we got calls on the line. Michael Geller calling in, uh, well known to the listeners, a real estate consultant. Hey, Michael, what do you think of this? I think it's a fabulous idea. It's not for everybody, and Noam is to be congratulated. He's been working at this for years, but it makes sense. But I called you, Mike, because you asked the question: like, would it work for an apartment? In 1982. Yeah. Uh, my company developed apartments on Fairview slopes that were specifically designed as what we call co-mingling units. And the way we did that was they were two-bedroom apartments, but each bedroom was on one side or the other side of the living room. So you had a little bit more privacy. 
And more and more now, we're seeing two-bedroom apartments designed that way. At Simon Fraser, we even designed a one-bedroom that could be shared by two unrelated people, and we did that by simply adding a door to the living room. Most apartments, as you know, just have a big living, dining kitchen. By having a door to the living room at night, that could become another bedroom. These are the kind of things I think we have to do, given these extraordinary costs of housing. Okay, Michael, thank you for that. Well, maybe it's not for everybody. I mean, I've lived with a roommate in in the past when I was a younger guy. Uh, Noam, what do you think of that idea? Like, how often do you see people saying, "Well, hey, we'd like to buy a place, but we, you know, together with but a condo, not necessarily detached home." Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's great, and I think having uh, builders and architects and designers who are really thinking about the flexibility and the community uh, aspects of our building is really important. So we are seeing a, a resurgence or a growth in buildings of, with designs like Grant on the line. Sorry, no, I'm just going to, let's go to the next caller here in the interest of time. Grant calling from North Vancouver. He is a home co-owner. Hi, Grant. Hi, Mike. Uh, nice to be on the show this morning. Uh, yeah, thanks for calling a, in. T- tell me about your situation there. Okay, it was uh, 1983. My wife and I uh, co- co-joined with uh, Chris and Jeff, another couple. They had uh, three kids. We had uh, one kid and one daughter and then another one uh, while we were in the house. And we lived here together until 94 when Jeff and Chris, they moved to the island. So we were able to, at that point, to buy them out and with the help of, of the rent from the, the suite that they were in. And uh, so we did that for a few years. And then when my my daughters um, grew up and have a family. Now we have uh, our, our daughter and her husband and, and grandchildren in the house. So it's worked out. It's been a really wonderful way to, to bring up our family and uh, been a great experience. And we've, we've never it... bothered with any, any special legal documents or anything through the ownership oh. with Chris and Jeff. Uh, everything worked out well. Okay, so I'm glad it worked out for you. So when you decided to do this, was it more like just like a handshake deal? It was, yeah. We just... Yeah. We were buddies and thought, well, let's, you know, we couldn't afford something on our own, so we bought a big old 1908 Heritage House and fixed it up and worked for, for both of us. Cool, Grant. Thank you for calling in and sharing that. Noam, I know you wouldn't, you wouldn't advise a handshake deal these days, right? You want, you want your clients to have everything in writing. 30 seconds here. Yeah, 95% of the time, even with a handshake deal, it'll work out great. But it's, yeah. you have to plan for the worst-case scenario. So that's why it's worth doing that advanced work and getting that legal agreement, just in case things do go sour. No, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Here we go now with chat GPT in schools, colleges, universities, students heading back to class. A lot of them love chat GPT. Uh, why not? Is this artificial intelligence program can write an essay or a term paper in no time flat. You know, should it be called chat GPT or, or cheat GPT? Should this technology be banned? I don't know how you can stop it, though. I've talked to teachers who say, look, you know, the genie's out of the bottle here. It, it's going to be difficult to put it back in. So maybe we should just allow kids to use this technology for their assignments. Maybe teachers will start using it, too. I know some already are. Got Michael Zwagstra standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. Simon Fraser University professor 
Terry Griffith on AI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT. And you'll hear her say here, well, you know what? If students are going to use it, maybe we should just recognize that they're using it. They're getting help and make that part of the system. Here she is speaking to CBC here. Have a listen. I've described it as they now have an intern doing the work with them. So <laughs> the, the workload is up a little bit because now it's, you know, a couple of people doing the work and quality. I'm going to have higher expectations of quality, but the beauty is they can actually do more work that then they can turn around and use in their work and lives. Okay, Terry Griffith there, SFU professor, basically saying chat GPT is like an intern or an assistant for students. So she believes the students should be able to have more output and because they're getting help. Let's discuss with my guest, Michael Zwagstra. Michael is a public high school teacher in Manitoba. He is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Michael, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks very much for having me. What, what do you think of that idea that we should look at ChatGPT as basically like an intern or an assistant for students there? If they're going to use it, maybe we should just acknowledge that they're going to use it and let them use it. Well, I, I think that's a simplistic way to look at it. I mean, you could uh, you, you, you can make the same argument that, uh, well, you know, when students write tests or essays, I mean, we know that there are plenty of, uh, uh, of, of resources on the Internet, so kids should just be able to have full Internet access during any test or, or whatever, and I, I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, do, I mean, obviously, I do recognize that it's made it a lot more challenging to catch students when they're cheating, but I will just add that ChatGPT isn't, as impressive as some people think. I've tested it out. I mean, and, and as a funny little exercise, I had it, I said, tell me about author Michael Zwagstra. And it got about <laughs> half the stuff right and about half the stuff wrong. I mean, it got the university wrong that I graduated from. And then you ask it questions, where did it get the information? And it actually admits that it makes stuff up. So oh. if you're going to use GPT, be very careful for it, especially for anything that's more technical or specialized, because it does make stuff up and get things wrong. Okay, Michael, you're a high school teacher. Are your kids or your students using it? Uh, there are some that are. And, uh, you know, I tell students, and there's ways around that that I deal with. I mean, one is that I try to make the essay assignments I give as, as I say, chat GPT proof as possible. And so I've refocused some of my essay type questions where I zero in on getting them to comment on a particular thing that was said during class or this particular presentation oh. or, uh, you know, or where they're having to identify the argument they think that is the best from the other side and then explain why it didn't convince them. You can still potentially use ChatGPT on those types of things, but you see how it gets a lot harder when you refocus the essay questions to make them really specific, because it's really specific stuff that artificial intelligence has difficulty with. Do you find it difficult to detect this, or and teachers generally, are they having trouble sort of staying on top of this? Like, if when you take a look at a student essay, is it obvious to you that they've been using like a chat GPT or an AI program? Maybe it's like too good. It's it would be obvious. It can it would not be obvious if the if the, the assignment question is really general. So if, mm. if, for example, describe three factors that led to Canadian Confederation in 1867. Uh, ChatGPT could do a really good job of doing that. That would be tough to detect uh, students doing. But if, if the question is more specific, where again, they're having to give their opinion 
And because we've been discussing stuff in class, I, I know I have a pretty good idea what their opinion is. Uh, it, it's harder to to get away with. And so I would say it's harder to catch you know, chat GPT stuff, uh, then it would be just them plagiarizing off of Wikipedia. They'd be amazed the number of students still do that. Uh, but uh, again, it's it's not impossible. Uh, it's not impossible to catch. And and again, my main strategy I means twofold. First, uh, when it comes to uh, to essays, I, I've, I've rewritten some of the questions so that way it's harder to use uh, artificial intelligence because the questions are more specific and related directly to what we did in class. And secondly, I place a strong emphasis on tests because tests are the one area where ChatGPT can't help you at all because you're not allowed to have any computer access while you're writing a test. And that's why I think tests are actually more important and more relevant than ever. So what, so what is the rule then, Michael, in your classroom? Is ChatGPT banned or are kids allowed to use it in some circumstances or is it right out? I, I, it's, I don't allow it. I mean, it's, uh, I tell them flat out that, uh, uh, no, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to use it. And I do, I do watch for it. Uh, and, uh, but again, most of the assignments that I give, uh, I'm not, frankly, I'm not overly worried about chat GPT because I, I don't do generic questions that you could find, you know, the Wikipedia type article, you know, mm-hmm. that chat GPT is really good at writing. Um, the t- again, the types of questions that I'm assigning or the types that, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is most of the time not going to be able to help you very much. Okay, let's listen to another clip here from Terry Griffith, a professor at Simon Fraser University, has an interesting take on this because it, it looks like basically she's saying, look, you can't beat them, so we might as well join them here. Just allow allow students to use this program, incorporate it into the curriculum. And you'll hear her say here how she actually uses artificial intelligence herself here. So it sounds like maybe teachers could start using ChatGPT as well. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Terry Griffith. I will be using AI to give the students even more ideas for how they could improve on the work that they've already done. So you could think about it as they do a draft, the AI does a draft, and then together we come back and think up even more ways to improve on their their work. I'm starting to wonder now if like human beings and actual human-based intelligence could be just cut right out of the whole process here. I mean, if the kids are using ChatGPT to write write an essay or a term paper, and then the teacher is using it to assess the paper and give feedback to the student, <laughs> where, I mean, yeah. is it, it gets completely automated, doesn't it? Your thoughts? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's again, I, I do believe in let, allowing teachers discretion, and I think there are some circumstances where a teacher could reasonably make use of, uh, of, of AI and ChatGPT specifically. Um, but this idea that I'm going to sort of revamp everything to explicitly make use of it, uh, as I've said, it's it's not as impressive when you get farther into it as, as it appears at first glance. It's uh, I've tested it out for a lot of things. And at first it's like, whoa, this is like really impressive. Like, you know, why is this city the best city? And then why is this city? And it lists. But then you start comparing. Well, it's just taking the same stuff and using kind of the same format and making many of the same points and just rewording it slightly. And so I, I think writing is still an important skill. Students still need to learn how to write. Uh, I do a lot of writing myself uh, outside of what I do in school. I write a lot of columns and research reports. I've never It's never even occurred to me to use ChatGPT uh, for that because, to be blunt, I think I can write better than what ChatGPT would come up with because unless mm. I'm just writing, if I'm just writing a generic, 
you know, tourism for sure. Chat GPT would be great. Or if I'm writing a welcome to the school year we, or a graduate or frankly, a graduation speech, which those are tend to be pretty much all the same anyway. Chat GPT is great for that kind of stuff. But for the kinds of things that I do and that I hope to teach students how to, to how to do artificial intelligence is not there yet. Yeah. Do you think that if we look at chat GPT and more through the prism of it, it's really cheat GPT, if a kid is using an AI program to write an essay and that's totally against the rules, that's cheating. Do you think that academic integrity and cheating is a, is a particularly acute problem in the school system right now? Like, or is there too much cheating going on? I mean, cheating at, at school and college and university has been around forever, but is it getting yeah. worse with this technology? Do you think? Yeah, it, it probably is. And, uh, uh, although again, it's, I can, again, because I teach high school, and, and I tell this to my students, I'm pretty blunt about this, is that I can tell the difference between grade 10 level writing and professional type writing. It's not that difficult to, to see. And frankly, generally speaking, uh, the students who are most likely to want to use ChatGPT are the ones who don't write very well. And so the difference in writing style becomes pretty obvious, same as when they plagiarize Wikipedia. The students that tend to write really well uh, are far less inclined to use, um, well, cheating of any form because they, they don't need to. And so you, you don't necessarily have to plug it into a computer uh, and, and have a program to an analyze it to tell you that this didn't come this didn't come from them. So there are a variety of ways that we uh, that we do try to catch students who are cheating. Okay, and this last question for you, Michael, as we go forward here and these programs get more sophisticated, I take your point that maybe chat GPT is not producing the excellence that maybe a lot of people think think that it is. It's not as good as maybe people think, but I don't know. It seems to me like it's going to improve. You know, this AI is getting more sophisticated, more powerful. Is this, would you say that's a major challenge here for schools, colleges, universities going forward here as we struggle with this and how we, how we incorporate this into the curriculum? Well, it is a challenge because yeah. we want students to learn how to write, and it's through it's through their writing that they can demonstrate that they know things and are able to think critically. And uh, the writing process is a challenging one where you have to formulate your sentences and your words and your paragraphs, and uh, students need to learn how to do that. It doesn't come naturally. It's, uh, writing is not an automatic thing. And so if you short-circuit that by just saying, well, as soon as you're able to write, we're just going to use ChatGPT and incorporate it in the classroom, we're yeah. going to have a whole bunch of bunch of students graduating who don't have a clue how to write and that's a problem because who's then going to write the new chat gpt programs to come <laughs> up with all this stuff? i don't know yeah that's a good point michael thank you for coming on today well thanks for having me have a good yeah. day All right, let's talk about condo living now. What if you want to buy an electric vehicle? You need to charge up your car, but there is no charging station or electrical outlet at your parking spot in your strata building. Can you put one in? We'll talk about that. How about this one now? What if you purchase a condo and your parking spot is too small? This actually happened to a Vancouver couple they actually said their parking stall was too narrow for their vehicle. They actually sued. They sued the Strata Corporation here. Let's discuss these cases now with my guest, Tony Giaventu, Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association. It's always great to have him. Hey, Tony, thanks for coming on today. Oh, pleasure, Mike. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great, and, I, and it's always great to have you here. So let, let's talk about some of these cases in the news here. I thought this one was really interesting about the, the narrow parking stalls here. So you had some people saying, look, my parking spot is too small. Uh, they went to the Civil Resolution Tribunal, wanted some compensation. Looks like the case got tossed out. You ever heard of that one? Like people buy a buy a strata unit, they buy a condo, and then they think, oh, wait a sec, this parking spot is not not very good. What do you think of that? Yeah, that does happen. And actually, not that too long ago, we had somebody who purchased a unit and a parking space and then drove their vehicle into the parking garage to discover as they tore a lot of the emergency sprinkler system out that their vehicle was too high for the parking garage. So, you know, I I think before you buy that, we say this all the time, right? But unfortunately, people get, we all get wrapped up in the excitement of buying a unit. We forget the little details. But if you have a car and you're going to have a designated parking spot, make sure it is identified on your agreement of sale, the location of it, and make sure you've looked at it and identified not only is it wide enough, but maybe it might be in an awkward position that you actually can't get it into that spot, and it's only appropriate for an extremely small vehicle. So, you know, there's all kinds of variables. But the other the other part about this, I think, that's really challenging to the public is um, buyers have the impression when they buy new developments um, or buy from somebody who had purchased from a previous new development that they're purchasing the parking spot. And in many, many cases... What they're actually purchasing is a license to use that parking spot. The parking spot itself has no physical identification on their title. So this is, a, this mm. is frequently just a separate agreement. And, you know, you know, the developer says, well, look, I'll sell you an extra parking spot for twenty-five dollars or $50,000. They have not sold you anything. They have just entered into a license agreement with you of some sort or a lease where that you have the rights to use that and you need to look closely at those because they have limitations on time periods as well so you know parking is complicated in buildings because it's all kinds of variations it's common property it's limited common property it may in a rare state case be part of a strata lot um, or it might be part of another strata corporation that your strata council has no control over so you know parking is something you need to really get the details in writing on your agreements for sale and look at your parking spaces. Okay, so that's some great advice there. So is this, it sounds like this is a case of, you know, buyer beware. You better make sure you know precisely what you're getting into. If you buy a place, buy a, expecting this parking spot to match your vehicle or fit your vehicle, you better go check it out first, right? Exactly. And if, you, yeah. if, you, if you've taken a moment and requested a Form B information certificate, the parking designation, if there is one, will be identified on that Form B. Go check out the parking space and make sure it, it is appropriate for your unit. Speaking of Tony G. Eventu, Condo Homeowners Association. Okay, Tony, let's talk about another one. This comes up a lot, I know, and that is electric vehicle charging capacity in some of these strata buildings. So let's say a lot of people want to get into an EV. Maybe you own one now. You need a place to charge up your car. Well, okay, some some strata buildings, especially the newer ones, have got that capacity. Some of the older ones, not so much. Let's listen to a clip here. Shannon Gilcrest, EV specialist for Metro Vancouver, on retrofitting some of these old parking spots in strata buildings. Let's listen. You can hardly walk down the street these days without seeing an electric vehicle. 
And newer buildings are mandated to have some sort of electric vehicle charging in them, but for older buildings, we have to retrofit them. And it can often be a difficult process to get started because people don't know where to start. Okay, so let's get into this a bit, Tony. So for the newer, the newer buildings, are they typically already equipped with a charging capacity for EVs? Some are, some are not. Again, it's a detail that you have to look closely at. Some of them just maybe only have the wiring um, to provide electrical service to the locations done. Um, the charging stations themselves are often not installed. That ends up being an obligation of either the um, user of the parking space or um, of the Strata Corporation if they're going to provide charging stations. But here we get to another complicated issue. Um, uh, we Bill 22 came into effect in May, and it sets some standards now that Strata Corporations have to act reasonably or cannot unreasonably refuse the request for a charging station. However, in exchange for that, they can require that the owner of the Strata lot assume all of the responsibilities of all the costs associated with it. That's fine, but you need to look at the next step. Is there actually electrical capacity in this building to install and introduce electric um, uh, charging stations for electric vehicles? Generally, for level two charging, um, there is sufficient capacity for stations and buildings, and certainly talk to some of the um, uh, professionals who install these. They can walk your strata corporation through that. One of the real challenges we have, and we're trying to figure out how to fix this, is that an owner may go through this request. They may be granted permission. They might spend ten, fifteen, or twenty thousand dollars getting a charging station to the space. The challenge we have with the Strata Property Act is the relationship on this is with the owner. It doesn't attach at all to the Strata lot, and we're looking at trying to find a way. Um, to encourage government to get um, the ability to actually register some of these agreements on the strata lots so they become part of the land title registry so they will actually carry over to the subsequent purchaser. Um, you might have a purchaser of that unit who does not have a vehicle or an electric vehicle and all yeah. of a sudden the strata corporation could be left with this infrastructure. Okay, is there enough... Electrical capacity, you touched on this briefly, in, especially in some of these older buildings, and especially as electric vehicles get more and more popular. I'm just wondering about the feasibility of actually retrofitting these older buildings to put multiple EV charging stations in there. Like, is there enough power to do this? Is, is, are these older buildings even capable of, of, uh, of doing that? Well, it's not just older buildings. It's also neighborhoods. Um, uh, hydro may only service a limited amount of power to a neighborhood. There's a large bare land strata, strata in um, Delta that has a capacity issue, and it's not because of their homes, um, because each person could install a station. But, you know, people are converting over to heat pumps. Um, they're eliminating yep. their gas furnaces. Um, they're putting air conditioning in, they're putting electric vehicles. The community itself doesn't have enough power being delivered to it for people to do this in their homes. So, yeah. you know, what we're going to see is an electrical planning report that's going to be coming out as part of the regulations in the near future. We, nobody knows what the, the details of that are yet, but essentially it's going to be a way of evaluating how much power do we have. But, if it, but in, you know, as you know, like most of our condos in Metro Vancouver and Victoria, they don't have air conditioning. And the heat domes have just killed us. So we also need to be looking at how much power is going to be needed 
for heat pumps or the split phase air conditioning units that are going to provide cooling for us. So our electrical demands are going way up. And our buildings, short answer, no, a lot of the older buildings don't have enough capacity. And it's going to be a significant expense to do upgrades. Yeah. Speaking of expense, how much does it cost? And you, you cited some numbers there earlier. If you're going to put an EV charging station into your strata parking stall, how much does that typically cost? And are there rebates available for that? There are a number of programs available. Um, the current um, rebate program of, around electrification of buildings um, basically ran out of funding and it ended. I suspect yeah. we'll see another program coming up soon. Um, but the um, uh, Fraser Basin Council has um, grants and funding for um, charging stations, level two charging stations, by far the easiest to install. But, you know, here's the other challenge. Where is the electrical service in your parking garage? And are, is it on P1 and are you on P3 or P4? You know, how are you going to get electrical to those areas without a significant cost? It's really, really in the best interest of a strata corporation to look at the parking garage and figure out what would it really cost to electrify this so we can at least have the potential of charging stations as the demand comes throughout. That's the way yeah. to control and manage the infrastructure. But, you know, we have buildings, you know, we went through this era. I'm sure you remember this 10, 15 years ago where the city of Vancouver wanted to reduce the number of cars downtown. So the number of parking spaces versus the number of units, the ratios went down to 0.55. Well, that's great. But now that those buildings are wanting to put in electrification, um, half of the owners who don't have parking spaces, they're not prepared to pay for this. So oh, we have, yeah, right. Know, and why should they? I don't have a yeah, parking great space. Point. Why should I pay for this? All right, my guest is Tony Giaventu, Condo Homeowners Association. Let's go right to your phone calls now. Gordon in Burnaby. Hi, Gordon, go ahead. Thanks, Mike and Tony. Um, I live in a condo in Burnaby, probably about 134 units, about 20 years old. We have a couple hundred uh, parking spaces. All we simply did is we uh, went to our, our first level of parking where we had visitor parking and gave up, I think, two of the stations or two of the parking spaces and put in charging stations. Seems seem to go over very well. Uh, there's probably only about eight EVs in our building at this point in time, but uh, yeah, we had no problem installing. I thought it was a really good point, uh, Tony, that you brought up about power capacity for neighborhoods, because that's certainly, yeah. I don't think anything we considered. Um, but yeah, it worked well enough for us. And, so those uh, are, I so could, Gordon, so th- those are shared, I guess those are shared power stations, right? Charging stations. Yes, they are. It would be it would be incredibly expensive to try and put power outlets at every one of the 200 plus parking spots. What what if you have two vehicles want to charge at the same time and there's no there's no how do they share that? Do they just work it out among yeah, there's, themselves? There's a two hour limit for charging. So okay, you know I haven't seen an issue, but there's probably like I say, you know, eight EVs at this point in time, and there's a two hour limit. But it seems to work for everyone. Gordon, thank you for the call. Tony, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, it's great. It's really a great solution. And a number of stratas have done that because they have lots of visitor parking. And the visitor parking is frequently near their electrical services. So it's the most economic way of doing it. The challenge we get down to in buildings is where there is no visitor parking. And so they really, you know, an owner really has to then look closely at what they're going to do to do the installation. But if the strata has sufficient visitor parking, um, just remember, I'm it sounds like they've done this right. Just make sure that you've passed the proper resolutions to double up the visitor parking as charging stations as well. Yeah. 
Nick in Vancouver. Hi, Nick. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Uh, we recently, well, this week, actually, we just had a vote on putting in uh, EV charging. Uh, I have an EV, uh, and at the moment I charge it overnight on a 110 system. Yeah. Uh, and we voted not to have EV charging uh, because of the cost, I believe. Um, you know, I, I charge overnight. That gets me through the next day. If we go out of town anywhere, I just go to a supercharger station, pay between 10 and 20 bucks, and, and that sees us through. The charge did- was going to be... The charge was going to be approximately five thousand per unit Ooh. to have each, and and then that that was just to get the wiring in, and then we would have to buy our um, level two charger, yeah. have that installed, which would be its own cost, and then we would have to pay between forty and sixty dollars per month on top of our strata fee for the actual cost of the electricity. So we okay, did you? Know. Did you vote against it yourself? I did, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It didn't make economic sense to me. No, that, that's a lot of money. Nick, thank you for the call. Tony, what do you think? Yeah, I know the cost barriers are huge. And, we, you know, we have some buildings um, who recently done their electrification in Yale Town, and it was a huge success And um, for their parking garage, and they did not require any electrical upgrades for their capacity. But we have a building in Kelowna, that in order to be able to get enough power capacity to their building and the upgrades, their upgrades alone are close to a million dollars. So it really varies building by building, location by location of what's going to be possible. One of the things that's going to be changing, though, and anticipate this as we go forward, and it's already part of Bill 22, is that the voting threshold to approve funds out of the contingency for EV um, upgrades, electrification of buildings, is only going to be a majority vote. It's not a three-quarters oh. vote anymore. So, you oh. know, so the voting thresholds have come down to help um, strata corporations do this and enable this. That's great. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Great solution. Okay, My concern is, what about all the other building infrastructure that's not being maintained? Yeah. Mark and Delta. Mark, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Oh, hey, okay, uh, I live in Tawasson in a uh, condo community consisting of four buildings, and every parking spot has a 120 with a pre-wire for 220. It's, it's awesome. Okay, that's, how old is that building? Uh, the first one started around 2008, and okay. then I progressed from there, so yeah. Okay, thank, thank you for the call. Tony, we've got 30 seconds here. Do, are, do most buildings of that age, are they, are they able to transition like that? Um, no, but, yeah. but there have been a lot of buildings around the lower mainland as you go through and throughout the province. There have been a good number of buildings where the developers have really um, stepped up and they've really helped to prepare buildings for what's coming for the future. So, again, it re- it's really variable. With 33,000 strata corporations in the province, um, yeah. it's every variation you could possibly think of. Tony, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure as always. Okay, let's talk about the drive to zero emission energy now. Now, we hear a lot about wind power, solar power. Of course, here in BC, we have lots of hydroelectricity. We need massive amounts of clean power here going forward, especially with Canada's targets for greenhouse gas emissions reductions, the transition to electric vehicles. Don't forget that Justin Trudeau has promised to go to 100% electric vehicle sales 
by the year 2035. 2035 is like 12 years from now. 100% EVs? That, that's the plan. Where are we going to get all this electricity, and especially this low-emission, zero-emission power? Okay, is it time to seriously think about rapidly expanding nuclear power in Canada? Trudeau was asked about that. I've got Robert Hayes standing by to discuss here. What a great guest we've got here for you. For you. First, have a listen to Trudeau here. Now, Trudeau was, was asked about nuclear power here in, in British Columbia. Have a listen to what he says here. We need to reduce our emissions and we need to reduce our de- uh, dependence on oil and gas. We're going to need more electricity and I know there are a lot of brilliant uh, uh, innovators here in BC and across the country leaning in on that. We're there to invest in a range of pathways so that we can make sure we're not just protecting the planet, but we're creating a strong and growing economy for years to come. But nuclear is nuclear on the table? Nuclear is on the table, absolutely. Nuclear is on the table. Absolutely. Lots of talk about small modular nuclear reactors, too. Is that part of the mix here? Okay, let's discuss it now with my guest, Robert Hayes. Robert is Associate Professor of Nuclear Engineering at North Carolina State University. He is very popular on social media. I uh, recommend his TikTok. He's got over a million likes on TikTok. Robert, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Happy to serve. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So let's let's talk a little nu- nuclear power here. So so first of all, like how how big is nuclear power here right now? Let's talk and say North America or the world, and and how big is it getting? Like how fast is nuclear growing right now? Well, it's not growing anywhere near as fast as it needs to be. Uh, we have about a hundred reactors here in the United States. There's about four hundred worldwide. Uh, if you look at what the International Panel on Climate Change said, we need to at least triple that, if not, uh, if not, if not five times that, in order to get uh, the, their climate goals. Uh, and uh, so it's not climbing anywhere near as it need as fast as it needs to be. We need to substantially uh, increase that if we're to get as much of our electricity with uh, uh, low emission as, as as needed to to make that transition off of fossil fuels. Yeah, and and when you take a look at the urgency around climate change and and the drive to clean power, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that nuclear option is lagging behind? Uh, Well, there's a lot of uh, anti-nuclear narratives that are very popular in society. Uh, Nuclear waste, that term, it's it's basically in our ethnography. It, uh, it, It has weight that is almost at a superstitious level. It's considered to be a conclusive statement without understanding the technical basis uh, as though it had infinite risk. Uh, And it's easy to ascribe infinite risk to something as mysterious as nuclear energy. Um, I mean, there are many people that think that uh, a nuclear power plant is like a nuclear bomb and it has the same risk as a nuclear bomb going off. Uh, But I mean, if you don't understand it, 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 the, the default for the human, as a general rule, is to assume something that's unknown is as dangerous as it could possibly be. And if you don't even know how dangerous it could possibly be, then in principle, it could have infinite risk. Okay, well, I, is it kind of understandable, though, that that people are concerned around safety, nuclear waste? I mean, people will remember Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, more recently, the Fukushima plant. I mean, there have been these very high-profile mishaps. Yeah, your, your thoughts, because, I mean, th- these things get burned into public consciousness, right? 
Well, that's kind of my point. That's kind of what I was saying. I mean, if you look at Three Mile Island, it had a, a, a meltdown in the core, and it terrified people. The radioactivity that was released raised the dose to the, the public by about 1% of that of natural background. So radiation is ubiquitous. We get uranium from the earth. And so we're, we're bathed in radiation, ionizing radiation all day uh, from uranium, thorium, potassium, uh, cosmic radiation, and so forth. And so the average dose that you get per day for a United States citizen, just from natural occurrences, is, is around 320, 310 millirem per year. And so one about 1% 1 of that, about 1 millirem, is, a, is around what the public got from Three Mile Island. Now, that is about what you get from a dental x-ray. And to say that that terrified people really speaks volumes, that that is what's etched in their minds as to why you shouldn't have nuclear energy. When the worst commercial nuclear accident that we've had in the United States didn't leave a scratch, didn't leave a bruise, mm. didn't leave any measurable medical effects at all. And yet people think that that's a justifiable reason to oppose nuclear. Mm. I mean, when you put it in context, how bad has it ever been for commercial nuclear energy in the United States is Three Mile Island. And that's all that it did. Now, Fukushima, that's a that's a very different, uh, a def very different uh, ballgame there. I mean, these reactors, they were designed in the 60s, built in the 70s. And Fukushima was one of those, the Japanese, that's a Western design. It's not like the Chernobyl where you have uh, a very bad design, very poorly run with no emergency response. Fukushima actually did have emergency response. It was a panic response. People were still terrified from yeah. these uh, anti-nuclear narratives that are out there. And so the only people that actually died from Fukushima were from the panicked evacuation. If you look at what the World Health Organization said, the United Nations uh, Scientific Council for the uh, Atomic Effects of Radiation, uh, and even all of the review papers that are out there, the doses from Fukushima to the public were too low to produce any measurable medical effects. They're, they're, the, 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 if there is going to be a radiogenic response, it's too small to see compared to natural variation. The doses were just that small, and yet people risked and lost their lives to avoid those kinds mm. of doses. And that's because of these narratives that you can have an infinite risk for something where you really don't know what it is. If you can't okay. assess it, then you default to, to extreme. Okay. Uh, very interesting thoughts on it. My guest is Robert Hayes. Robert is a nuclear scientist, nuclear engineering at North Carolina State University. Okay, Robert, I guess the safety is one issue. The other the other big one, I think, for a lot of people is the cost. Like, it sounds like, okay, climate change is this, is this the challenge of our lifetimes. We have to go to low emission energy. Why not nuclear? Like, it's often gone through my mind. Why isn't it more urgent? There's a more urgent need to build more nuke capacity. But then you think about the finance or the economics of this or the expense of it. Is nuclear too expensive? Because there's Lots of talking here in Canada about small modular reactors. Can we harness the energy of these SMRs to solve our problems? But then there's arguments that it, it's just too expensive. Now, just to illustrate that for you, let me play a clip here for you. This is a uh, University of British Columbia professor M.V. Ramana here saying that these small nuclear reactors are too expensive to run. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. Because you are trying to control a very hazardous process, it's necessarily a very expensive process. And the only way that the nuclear industry has figured out how to reduce costs is to build big so that you can reduce the per unit costs. And so when you go to smaller reactors, you lose out on those economies of scale.
Okay, so he says these smaller reactors, these small modular reactors are too expensive to run. Your thoughts? So my actual expertise is in, I, I teach health physics, radiation, radiation safety, radiological protection. That's my expertise. And that's where generally other experts don't have expertise to describe the actual risks. And that assumption that the risk is infinite does these kinds of things. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say California got sick of automobile accidents. They were just fed up with them and they decided that you cannot sell a car in California unless that car can get into an accident, roll down a cliff, fall into a lake, be submerged for a certain period of time, and then find itself in a fire. And anybody that was in that car needs to get up and walk away without a scratch, without a bruise, without any kind of anything other than just being afraid. That's how safe that car has to be. Because literally, a car is deadly. It is fundamentally deadly. Now, it could be an ugly death. It could be a quick death. We're going to ignore that for the sake of the analogy that that car would be crazy expensive if it had to be yeah. that safe. You get that it was walk away safe, that you could literally walk away safe from it. The only technology that gives us that kind of uh, 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 capability in industry right now is nuclear. Walk away safe. Where, like with Three Mile Island, where we decided that's not safe enough, where it had a meltdown and nobody was hurt. Fukushima people got hurt because they were so afraid they had a panicked evacuation, but the containment worked. That's the way they're designed. That's why they're expensive is because we want the risk to be zero. And yeah. if we're going to insist we have a zero risk, then there's a price to pay for that. And so uh, right now, the idea is with the small modular reactors, we maintain that safety envelope, but we do it in a way that's economically friendly. So if you want emission-free, safe energy, nuclear is the only way to go. And if you want it to be as safe as we have, walk away safe, then you're going to pay for that. If, you don't, if, okay. if you're willing to accept higher risk, then, then it's going to be cheaper. All right, we're talking nuclear energy with my guest, Robert Hayes. He is a nuclear scientist. You should check out his videos on TikTok. He's got more than a million uh, likes on there. Let's go to some of your phone calls here. George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Thanks Hi. for having this guy on. I agree yeah. 100% with him. Unfortunately, it's never going to happen because the climate kooks who are insane with their religion about climate change will never, ever allow this to happen. Well, I mean, it is. Thank you for that. Well, it is interesting to see like the environmental movement, which which we're, we're so concerned about climate change, Robert. And, you know, there is a lot of environmental opposition to nuclear nuclear, too. What do you think of those sort of sort of countering positions there? I have no expertise in climate science and I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So I, I, I really can't comment. <laughs> Okay, but there is a lot of, but what would you say generally about the uh, opposition to nuclear on environmental grounds? Oh, it's, uh, it's contradictory. It's absolutely contradictory. Mm. Uh, nuclear energy has the smallest environmental footprint. If you want to have the smallest amount of land use, the smallest amount of mining, the smallest amount of waste, the smallest amount of transportation, the smallest amount of manufacturing, the small, if you want to make all those things smaller... All those things that have an environmental footprint, nuclear is the way to go, flat out. It's better than all of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, any of them put together, uh, nuclear is just flat out. It's just such a high energy density that all of those things just become small. It's the only way back, to go. Back to the phone lines, Jeremy in Abbotsford. Hi, Jeremy. Go ahead. Well, anyway, yeah, I would describe myself as probably one of those public people that doesn't know much about it and on the nervous side. 
And all I remember from Fukushima or whatever is Washington State, south of us, did testing for the uh, cows and the dairy and the milk. And I think it was within a couple of weeks they were picking up radiation in the dairy milk. BC wouldn't do the testing. I remember that about our province. And I don't know how he can, if he can comment on that. But it's not safe, I don't think. There's this larger risk. We don't know the results. Robert, Robert, your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, those really are just uh, feel-good measures to make people feel good. Uh, The amount of radioactivity, anthropogenic activity in the environment is largely due to atmospheric nuclear weapons testing in the past century. Uh, United States contributing to that, but uh, there was a lot of uh, open-air nuclear weapons detonations that took place. And so that's covered the earth. However, uh, that amount of radioactivity, it's, it's less than a tenth of a percent uh, the dose equivalent that you get just from natural radioactivity. Um, potassium is one of the biggest ones because uh, potassium is naturally radioactive and it's essential to life. Um, but the biggest dose mm. that we all get actually comes from radon uh, because we don't walk around in respirators. So the actual radioactivity that came from Fukushima was a small fraction of that which came from uh, atmospheric weapons testing in the past century. And so mm. we do that to make people feel better because they don't know, right? And and, and one way to say it is it, it, rather than saying, just trust me, it's all right, we'll go and measure it. Let's go and measure it. And then everybody has a measurement and you can feel better. That's pretty much what that is, is it's it's to, uh, so that the mm. public doesn't fear and panic. Because when people are fearful, right, cortisol levels rise and all kinds of health problems come if you stop, start to become petrified or terrified of something, of anything. Hey, Rob, last question for you. We just got one minute left here. Do you think that the, the economics of this, the, the cost of nuclear energy, what is the, what are the trend lines there? Is the cost coming down? Is it sort of staying kind of stable, going up? What direction is it going in? Uh, I would say that it's, it's more or less stable um, yeah. in the sense that there are cost uh, um, uh, improvement methods by doing uh, small modular reactors. Uh, there are some cost improvements, but because they have a smaller scale, there's a penal- there's a price penalty for that. So you get a little bit of uh, cost effectiveness by modularity, but by small by making it smaller, that the, you you get a, a slight increase in the cost in the sense that you're you're not doing an econo- economy of scale at that point. Um, and so it's somewhere in the range of uh, uh, steady. Robert, we got more calls coming into you here, so we'll just have to have you back. Thank you for coming on today. Vegas, everybody's got to watch everybody else. The boxmen are watching the dealers. The floormen are watching the boxmen. The pit bosses are watching the floormen. The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The casino manager is watching the shift bosses. I'm watching the casino manager, and the eye in the sky is watching us all. Yeah. Yeah, I always love that clip there in that movie Casino with Robert De Niro. The the eye in the sky is watching everybody, and everybody's watching everybody else in the casino. Okay, let's talk about what's happening in Las Vegas now. I'll tell you what, Las Vegas here, never bet against Vegas because they've come roaring back here. They were down pretty bad during the pandemic, remember that? Man, business dried up in Vegas when at the worst of the pandemic but man vegas seems to be booming here right now if you take a look at some of these some of these revenue numbers that are coming up let's discuss with my guest david schwartz from the university of nevada las vegas 
and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. David, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. So I'm taking a look at some of these revenue numbers for Vegas here. Man, you talk about a winning streak here for Las Vegas with the amount of revenue that was generated just looking at last year. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars in profits here, right? Like, is Vegas booming? What's happening? Yeah, definitely. Uh, gambling revenues are way up, so people are gambling a lot. They're also spending a lot of money on the non-gaming stuff, which is the hotel rooms, uh, meals, entertainment, you know, so all this stuff is getting so much bigger. Yeah, that's amazing. Taking a look at revenue for 2022, $14.8 billion, 10.5% increase over the over the previous year. So that's some that's some big growth. I thought it was supposed to be a tough economy out there. How come people are gambling so much? Why why do you think that's happening? It's a really interesting question. You know, it is a tough economy in a lot of ways. And it might be that people, it's a tough economy. So some people aren't going to places overseas internationally. So they're choosing to go to Vegas instead. You know, that could be happening. But definitely it's been seen that people are having not too much of a problem spending money in Las Vegas. Yeah, for sure. Do you think maybe there was some um, pent-up demand sort of post-pandemic? People were shut down, didn't really do much traveling, and maybe itching to get back to normal and have some fun, and maybe that's why there's, people are saying, I'm going to Vegas. Yeah, I think that's a really good theory, and definitely there was a couple years there where visitation was down, revenues were way down. So this it makes sense that people, some people were saving up their money and now have the ability to come back to Las Vegas. Yeah. How do you think um, Las Vegas has changed over over time, let's say in recent years? Like, would, what would you say are the sort of business trends in, in Vegas? Because uh, I was down there. I enjoy visiting Las Vegas. I was down there a few months ago. And, man, it just, um, the hotels just seem somewhat more opulent. You've got that sphere now that has changed the, changed the skyline of Vegas in a, in a very um, dramatic way. And I think it's going to be very successful. What are the trends are you seeing there? Are things getting bigger in Vegas? Yeah, yeah, definitely things are getting bigger. And there's been a really big shift uh, since the 90s, but it's really intensifying a lot lately where people aren't coming to Las Vegas just to gamble. You know, so back in 1990, if you want to play slot machines, Vegas is a place to go. Now you can do that almost anywhere, you know, in Canada, in the U.S. and other countries. So really now the draw is entertainment, which is why they have the venues like sphere like Allegiant stadium you know sports also becoming a huge draw for las vegas yeah for sure the last time i was there i didn't didn't do any gambling at all because we were just down there to see a, a show i wanted to see so maybe that's uh seems to be a trend a trend as well when you it is interesting to see this happening especially when gambling seems to be booming like across the board, across the country, in the United States and in Canada, too. I was looking at some of the gambling revenue just in America generally up. Sports gambling is huge. You know, you can't turn on a game without seeing being saturated with sports gambling advertising. Vegas, Las Vegas seems to be holding its own and more so in that, that kind of competition, would you say? Yeah, and that's something that we've seen historically Back when online poker got really big, poker revenue in Las Vegas went up a lot, you know, just about tripled. 
And it wasn't that people were playing poker online so they wouldn't go to Las Vegas. It was that people were learning how to play poker online and then coming to Las Vegas to play poker. And I think that's what you're seeing happening with sports betting, where, you know, maybe 10 years ago for a lot of people, they see the sports book as just this room with these weird numbers up on the board. Now they're used to doing it at home and they want to play some bets while they're in Las Vegas. So it has actually helped. Yeah. What about some of the, um, I was reading about some of the rule changes on some of the more popular games in the casinos in Vegas and some of the rules being changed to favor the house, not and, and go against the player here. Uh, that's not very good. Like when I take a look at the rules on blackjack, for example, so, you know, one of the most popular casino games and it used to be forever that if you got a a blackjack, like an, an ace and a 10, that would pay three to two, right? So if you had like a $10, $10 blackjack yeah. hand, you would get back $15 for a blackjack. Mm-hmm. Now they're changing that? Like they're shortening those odds? Is that right? Well, they've been doing this for a while, and it just kind of, it's the kind of thing that kind of started and sort of crept in. Uh, one casino tried it and basically changing the odds for a natural blackjack from three to two, as you said, to six to five, which is right. kind of funny. You know, a lot of this is just players maybe not being as educated as they should. You know, people have argued, well, six to five is better because the numbers are bigger. It's like, no, it's not. Oh. It paid less. <laughs> yeah. So, so some people say that. And at the end of the day, if people are going to be playing those games with the worst odds, the casinos are going to keep on offering them. If people stop yeah. playing in the won't offer them. So basically, if the players are going to let the casinos get away with it, why wouldn't the casinos offer it? Yeah, yeah that I can understand that rationale for sure. Because right now with six six to five, so that means if you're betting ten dollars, you and you get a blackjack, you would get back twelve dollars, right? Instead yeah. of fifteen dollars. Yeah. Instead of fifteen. Yeah. And there's even triple zero. Yeah, there, there's triple zero roulette. Where instead of having zero and double zero, they also have a triple zero. I mean, one person told me, well, what do you mean it's worse odds? It's another chance to win. Oh, Actually, it makes it worse odds. <laughs> yeah, of <laughs> course, that. right. Because if you if you put another triple zero on the wheel, that's one more, actually one more way you can lose, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I guess that's yeah, so, confidence, saying another, another yeah, way to win. So but I mean, yeah, at, at, at the end of the day, they're all going to be negative expectation games to the player. But right. some of them do have better odds than others. Yeah, and it is interesting because you know all the all the odds are against the players. I mean, that's just the way the casinos make money. But when you start changing the odds to make it even even worse for the player, I guess it's supply and demand, right? Like if people are going to still keep coming in record numbers, and apparently they are with the way the profits are up in Vegas. Uh, do you think they could maybe even change the rules even more against the player here, shorten the odds even more? Uh, they might be able to, but I think at some point there will be some kind of backlash. And, yeah. you know, you the idea that I think built Vegas is that it's a place to go and have fun. And when it stops being fun, people will, will stop coming. So you definitely want to give them, you know, even if they know that they're not going to win every time they come out here, at least, you know, letting their money last a, a little while longer than, than maybe it is right now. Yeah. Okay, well, things are certainly rolling and uh, very well for Vegas right now. David, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.